Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Coleman, your host today. I'm talking today to Sarah Pugach about her new book, African Students in East Germany, 1949 to 1975, published by the University of Michigan Press in 2022. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Nicole. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Would you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Um, I'm originally from New Jersey, and um, I got my undergrad degree at Penn and my PhD in Chicago. Um, I've always been really interested in uh, Germany and German history because my mother's family is German-Jewish. Um, they come from uh, Gansbach, which is a small town near Baden-Baden. And so I I had a, a very, when I was originally going into uh, deciding to get a PhD in history, I thought I would study uh, something having to do with German Jewry. Uh, but then I, somebody, I was, I, I took a class that uh, dealt with Africa and I became really fascinated in the idea of looking at um, African and German connections instead. And so um, I wrote my first book, which is called Africa in Translation, uh, history, God, <laughs> um, a history of um Colonial Linguistics uh, in Germany and Beyond. Um, I wrote that book uh, as my dissertation. And uh, yeah, so I've just uh, continued being really interested in the topic. So, yeah. yeah, thank you. And how did you then come to write this book, African Students in East Germany? Well, at the time when I was, so I, I first came up with the idea, I remember I was first talking with someone about the idea around 2009 and saying, hmm, you know, I know that there were a lot of, you know, students, you know, from Africa who were in East Germany and West Germany too, but um, I hadn't seen anybody write about it. And, you know, it was one of my, talking with one of my colleagues and he said, you know, he hadn't heard of that either. And then I just started like feeling out the topic a little bit and seeing what material there might be. Uh, Now there's a lot of stuff that's been written on it because I'm not, Far from the only one, there are tons of people, not tons, okay, <laughs> a few other people, you know, who are writing in this topic as well right now. Uh, but at the time, there really wasn't much of anything. Um, and so I I wrote to, um, I guess, the archivist at the University of Leipzig. And that's where I sort of started the research. And I remember that was in, a, God, that was in I think, December 2010, I think. Um, so I went to a trip to the archives there. And uh, there was just an enormous amount of material um, concerning the students uh, at the university archive that at the time no one had looked at. Um, the archivist gave me one small piece somebody had written in German about Ethiopian students, and that was it. Um, and so I just 
you know, I, I don't know. I just went from there. I went back to the University of Leipzig several times. Um, they that, that continued to be one of the most important archives. But really, there was just everywhere so much material on this subject, which just I don't know if it shocked me exactly, but it's there's all the different universities, uh, you know, at the Bundesarchiv, um, at the political archives, uh, just all over. And it's just really, again, there's a wealth of this material. So, you know, again, there are now several people working on this and there's more than enough material. <laughs> so, yeah. The book really waited to be written. That <laughs> that sounds really good. Um, all right, let's get into the book. So you open the introduction with experiences of African students with racism, which allows you to confront right away the anti-racist self-image of the GDR and the reality um, around it. Why is this so important to you to to start the book this way? To start it this way? Um I think because it's, it's sort of a very major part or one section of, of the thesis, the overall thesis of the book. Um, I think that there is this myth that surrounds the GDR and that that and and the Soviet bloc in general. I think that it was and they they were anti-racist, anti-imperial states, and I think that is <laughs> it is a, yeah. It's a, I would say it's a myth and. Um, And it's it's but it's one that it's really it really is um, deeply rooted. Um, so I gave a talk on this book uh, just about a month ago or two months ago or something, where somebody in the audience said to me, "Well, at least you know the GDR was inviting African students." And I had already said that it wasn't just the GDR; it's countries all over the world, including the U.S., including West Germany. But the person apparently had just totally like not listened to that and was like, "Well, you know, at least the Soviet countries, they Soviet bloc countries are inviting people." And I'm like, "No, it's not just that." everybody who's inviting African students. Um, so I felt it was important to deal with this myth and, and to talk about just how much racism still was there and how much racism still mattered. I mean, I remember talking to, uh, years ago to a friend of mine who said, you know, um, they say, you know, th these African students, the first ones are in, in East Germany in 1951. So you know, from 1949 is when they're asked to come, right? So from 1951, uh, that's, That's only, I said, you know, that's only six years after the end of the Holocaust, right? So really, can you to expect that there wouldn't be racism or that racism would only be there as, you know, a, a holdover or a leftover? It, it doesn't make any sense, right? Uh, and, and of course, all the very first students experienced racism and they experienced it all the way, you know, till the end. So, uh, they experienced it all the way through. And uh, I really wanted to to highlight that and to show that it, this is a myth. On the other hand, I also talk about how there actually was a lot of, there were a lot of effective ties, uh, emotional ties, bonds, personal relationships, romances, all sorts of things that came out of this too. So while yes, uh, racism was a really, there was a lot of racism and the African students definitely encountered it. Everyone I spoke, well, not everyone. Okay, that's, I should hold back. But a lot of the students I spoke with um, you know, said, yeah, of course that, that was there. Um, that you know there also were these really nice bonds so anyway <laughs> right and these ambiguities are really at the heart of almost every chapter right and so it you really start with that right away and it does make sense it's not a switch that somebody can just turn off and suddenly it's gone right um and 
And it's so interesting how you also show that the GDR was or became then this gateway to education um, and one that afforded African students with mobility um, more so than East Germans, um, right? So um, I think that that's just a, a really fascinating way of, of, of showing all these ambiguities from the get-go. So in this book, you bring together the German context with the larger context of the Cold War and also African histories, particularly of decolonization. So was this your goal from the outset or did these different strands appear in your sources? So how did this interconnected theme emerge and what interested you about it? Um, I think it emerged largely from the from ver the very first when I was looking at the sources. And it also has to do with sort of my own personal interest in I, I'm both a Germanist and an Africanist, or that's how I see myself. In fact, my position at Cal State Los Angeles is as an Africanist, though I teach German and African history pretty much both <laughs> all the time. So it's not, you know, but um, but my position is technically as an Africanist. And so I really wanted to sort of knit together uh, these two streams of uh, the historiography. And, and they really do come together very well. I mean, uh, they are they are sort of there even from the beginning. I mean, you, when I was reading through the different documents, another thing that's striking is how much power African students and African governments had in terms of their negotiations with, um, which is not something someone would have thought, right? But their negotiations with um, the GDR, rather with uh, officials at universities usually, um, and others, officials in the, the foreign ministry, things like that. They They could say things like, you know, if you don't, you know, resolve this issue, I'm going to leave or I'm going to talk to my, you know, my government and they're not going to be happy because the whole, the broader context of this whole thing is that, again, uh, African students were being sort of courted throughout the world in this time period. So um, in both, uh, the, both the, the Eastern Bloc and um, in the capitalist world, right? And as well as in non-aligned countries like India, Israel, they were being courted all over because again, this is the, the era of decolonization and the Cold War, they intersect. And so when, um, when these countries are decolonizing, they're decolonizing into a world that is on the surface seems really split, right? And so they, uh, both sides are kind of clamoring to get these these African countries, these new countries, onto their team, so to speak, right? Um, but uh, basically, what what usually happens is that these African countries are, you know, the the leadership and so forth. They're they're very <laughs> they're very cagey. I mean, they they play both sides. They um, often claim, you know, they are remaining non-aligned. Um, and a lot of the African countries were not all of them, but a lot of them were. Um, and they're trying to, you know, play play both sides, and they're wanting to get aid from both um, the Eastern Bloc and from the capitalist bloc, right? So since they're trying, you know, they, they, so they are really successful in bringing in uh, aid from both sides, and also in creating these ties to both sides. So um, you know, students again are, you know, being recruited from all over the world. And when I, a lot of the research I did showed that while for the GDR, actually the African students seemed to be actually quite important um, in showing that they had this connection, um, that these students were saying, in, at least publicly, a lot of them were saying uh, the GDR has overcome racism, or at least the ones who stayed in the GDR, and that's an important one too. But, um, and, well, even some of the ones who left, they, they talked about, you know, it's overcome racism, even though, again, that wasn't true. So they wanted that out there, right? Um, and, uh, but, but for the African countries, uh, really the GDR kind of is one small piece of a much larger 
puzzle. So in a couple of the different chapters, I talk about this. Um, I talk, for instance, about um, how in Zambia, well, at the end, it was when it was northern Rhodesia, sort of at the very end before um, its decolonization, um, that the that um, there was an office in Dar es Salaam basically devoted to um, fielding scholarship offers from all over the world, including ones from the GDR. But for them, it wasn't a question of, you know, getting someone to a specific country or matching a specific per person with a specific ideology. It was just a question of when did that scholarship come in and who do we have to go? And oftentimes people will be switched out at the last minute uh, because one person like would, they would say one person is going to go and then for some reason they can't, okay, we'll switch someone else in, right? And I mean, you see this also, um, when I talk about this in my chapter on Ghana as well, um, that th there's actually, there's a very rich um, archival um, file documentation uh, in, in Ghana on, um, on African students and um, their travels and where uh, the Ghanaians were getting uh, scholarships from. And they have these whole like lists of different countries and how much many scholarships they're offering, what is on offer. And the interesting thing there is that the GDR is in a really sort of strange and not that great position because the Ghanaians are really leery of offending the FRG because they're gonna be getting a lot more money from the FRG than from the GDR. So they originally they're accepting the scholarships but they're not accepting as many as the gdr originally wants them to um but they are accepting them and it is also important for kwame nkrumah as you know not aligned socialist leaning at the time you know again first uh, first president of ghana independent ghana um for him to for him to say you know we we're, we're forging these connections with the socialist world uh but on the other hand you know the Ghanaians are very cognizant of where the money is right so they are going to be looking very much um, at or trying not to offend those countries, right? Um, that were, um, you know, giving more money, you know. So this is all. Part, it's also part of that whole Holstein doctrine where West Germany was saying, if you recognize East Germany, then we're going to cut off relations with you. So most of the African countries only had trade missions. They didn't have. Um, yeah, they did trade missions. They didn't have embassies mostly until the 1970s. So. Yeah, that sounded like difficult uh, negotiating and navigating on, on many different sides. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, in your introduction, you also introduced the longer German-African history and refute some theories such as that Germans weren't involved in the enslavement of Africans, for example, and, and how short or long that history actually is. Can you highlight just some important points in that long history? And I know it's long, <laughs> but so what do we need to know? So one of the most important things is that the history of uh, German connections with Africa, as you just mentioned, in terms of uh, discussing German involvement in the slave trade, doesn't begin with uh, German official German colonization. Um, and it doesn't end when official German colonization ends. There are Germans uh, traveling and going places and living places all over the world as part of other colonial empires prior to um, prior to Germany's official uh, entry into the scramble for Africa in the late 19th century. Um, so for instance, um, there are a lot of missionaries um, in the 19th century, throughout the 19th century, who go to Africa, German missionaries who go to Africa as members of, let's say, the Church Missionary Society, which is an important London-based English British mission society. Um, and so there's this really long history of a German presence um, in not just Africa, but other areas of the world. Uh, and I 
I uh, co-edited a book uh, that uh, discussed that uh, that came out in 2020, uh, how we have to look at German involvement with uh, the global South, not just in terms of German colonialism, which I think was how it was always looked at when I first began looking at these topics in the 1990s. Um, but so it has to be framed much more broadly and German interactions with the wider world sort of in the colonial period, but also beyond on both sides. So uh, I, again, I would say highlights are, you know, the, this strong German presence of missionaries uh, in, in Africa, if we're talking about Africa specifically, again, from the very beginning of the 19th century, originally with the Church Missionary Society. Later on, they do come more with uh, German mission societies. Um, and if anybody's interested in reading about that, I think Jeremy Best's book is very good. He covers like this entire sort of sweep of um, not just in Africa, but of, of the history of uh, Protestant missionaries in Germany. Uh, so, um, yeah. <laughs> and then so uh, so then the, the, look at the missionaries uh, who started at the beginning of the 19th century with the CMS. Um, then uh, you get German explorers going out later into the 19th century. Um, and then you get, you know, again, the advent of, of German colonialism, uh, the Berlin Conference, 1884, 85, um, you know, uh, Germany's rather disastrous history um, of, uh, of colonization, especially in um, Namibia and in Tanzania with the Herero, uh, the genocide of the Herero Nama and with the Maji Maji uprising uh, in East Africa. Um, then you get, you know, Germany loses its colonies um, after or during and after World War One. Uh, the only one where they're able to even hang on a little bit is in what was German East Africa, Tanzania. Uh, but even that they lose by the end. And so, and then there, there's a lot of, I haven't looked too much at like the 20s and 30s. Well, I have a little bit with the 20s and 30s, but um, there's definitely an interest in uh, getting the colonies back on the part of uh, various different groups, interest groups, right? Uh, which was actually something that was that sort of the general knowledge was when I first started doing research in African German connections to Africa in, in the 90s, the idea was that, well, you know, the Germans really weren't all that interested in getting their colonies back. That wasn't really true. Uh, and so uh, that's something that's sort of uh, come out uh, sort of more recently, that there was much more of an interest uh, in Africa uh, after uh, the end of World War One than uh, was really originally thought, I suppose. Um, then um, there's a lot of work that's been done on uh, Africans in Nazi Germany and the really uh, horrible experiences they have. Um, I'm thinking of a Tina Kamp Kamp's book, uh, Other Germans. Um, there's that very famous book by, oh, I'm going to blank on the name of the guy, but um, about this this man who, uh, Masakoi, Hans-Jürgen Masakoi, right? That's a very famous book about his experience in Nazi Germany. Um, so there is this experience, and then you get to the, uh, which is, again, uh, Africans, people of African descent, uh, sometimes were sterilized, uh, sometimes did end up being murdered. Other times they just sort of fell outside of the purview of the system, because I think the idea, uh, Comp talks about this, is that they weren't really, uh, they, they didn't fit categories neatly because they just didn't. So um, it was really difficult for the Nazis to figure out what to do with them. Um, then in when you get into the, the 40s, again, then you get to this, this context where both West and East Germany are really interested in bringing Africans into the, their countries, into their universities, and therefore also bringing them into um, their, their orbit of the Cold War. 
All right. And then we are at the beginning of your chapters. And uh, you structure your book in five chapters. The first three are mostly chronological and highlight specific group of students. We're also discussing themes such as mobility. And then the last two chapters are topical and talk about protest as well as race and gender. So let's start with chapter one, your first chapter. Uh, begins with the first 11 students who arrived from Nigeria in 1951. So what can you tell us about how it all started and this particular group of students? Oh, yeah, this story is, is fascinating. And I actually was trying to track down the exact files I needed to look at for a couple of years regarding these students. Um, actually, the main, the most important file or files are at the University of Leipzig. But for a while, they were didn't really want to release them because they didn't know if any of the people in this group were still alive. Um, it turns out they're not. But um, also in, in talking with uh, the archivist, uh, they said, look, you know, don't, you can't name any names. So I didn't do that unless somebody actually had talked about themselves as an African student, you know, at another point. And so for instance, there's this author, um, Eoieri, who wrote a novel about his experience as an African student in Germany, uh, which I think was published in the 80s sometime. Uh, so, you know, in that case, yeah, because he's known. But otherwise, I didn't want to really, um, you know, give names out. And I only used names if I knew a person was dead or if they said I could use it, basically, in, in the book in general. Um, so, but there are these really rich files that sort of document how the GDR originally made contact uh, with the Nigerians. And it's actually, it's tracked pretty well in this novel. This guy, Oyeri, it's not 100% the same, but it is largely autobiographical. So um, in the files, uh, basically it says that um, the FDJ uh, made an offer of, um, of, of, excuse me, of scholarships to African students, to Nigerians who were in the original iteration supposed to be uh, children of Uh, the fall of, of miners who were killed in a massacre um, in, um, in, 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 in oh Ivo Valley Massacre. Um, so, and they, they were was supposed to go to the children of, of this massacre, which was instituted, or the massacre was under the aegis of the British, right? Um, and so, um, in the end, though, only one of the students actually is, um, who ends up going um, to Uh, East Germany is actually a child of a fallen miner. The rest of them come from all other sorts of places. So I don't exactly know why they, it, maybe there weren't children in that age group or whatever, or they didn't want their kids to go, who knows. But in any case, only one ends up going. Um, and, and they made, FDJ originally makes connections with Nigerian trade unions and trade unionists. Um, and so, um, and they're doing this in 1949. They're doing this only a month after the GDR is actually formed. So it's kind of pretty, early, right? Um, which is also sort of something you wouldn't necessarily expect. Um, also, the British are very aware of this early on, too, because I, I looked at documents um, in, in London as well, uh, relating to this sort of tracing this history, and they are not happy about it. Um, they are very concerned about the students going uh, to East Germany and to getting indoctrinated. And they have this whole sort of long back and forth. In the end, the British are like, well, You know, they're not going to have the money to send them anyway, so we shouldn't be worried. <laughs> of course, they do end up getting there, right? Um, and largely, they're largely funded um, by uh, the East Germans. So um, it's a difficult trip. Um, and it's, it's difficult, I think, in that a lot of them have to stay, go somewhere else first before they can actually go to the GDR. Um, you know, there are stories of people, you know, having to, to transit through 
Great Britain, I think that's the most common, uh, but also through other countries as well. And then when they come into the GDR, um, they come in as, uh, you know, as, as members of the festival, oh God, what's, what's it called again? The Festival of Youth, I'm totally blanking on the name of the festival, but anyway, they come in as supposedly being members of this festival that's being held in Leipzig, uh, but there actually are two people who actually are members of the festival who come. Um, and they're all, they're all basically like, they basically, the, the government, oh, they're all members of this festival, are people who came for the festival and they're going to leave. But in fact, most of them had come well before the festival um, and were already kind of settling in um, to their lives uh, in the GDR. And I also want to say that some of these were, students were really young. Um, with this first group of, first group of 11, um, there were two of them, including there was one woman in the group. And... Um, the two of, and and she and one other man were only, uh, well, boy at the time, they were only 14 when they first came. So, which is really, which really surprised me as well. I think the ages though stemmed from 14 into the, some, I think there were a couple that were in their later 20s, but, you know, of this group. So the age disparity was very large, or the age range rather was very large. Um, and so, yeah, they, they got there. And um, again, they did experience, uh, certainly experienced racism, um, especially I think in regard to the relationships they formed with African, with rather, excuse me, with East German women. Um, and that's also a thread, there's a chapter on it, but that actually has a thread that actually runs throughout the book because these relationships were really, really common between East German women and African students. Um, so from the get-go, there's this uh, idea that, you know, that, that the women are just distracting the Africans from their study <laughs> and that the Africans are, there's this whole uh, stereotype, which, which is a holdover, like, well, that, it, it comes all the way through from the colonial era and, and, and earlier that Africans are somehow overly sexualized and are going to be driven crazy by white women. It's this whole, you know, myth. And so there's this worry that these women are, are going to be tempting these men and that the men aren't going to be able to stop themselves. And then that's going to interrupt their studies. That's the whole, so this, that's one whole aspect of the original racism that they encounter. Um, Another aspect is they have this tutor, I told the story in the book, who is assigned to them, I guess, to get help at them acclimate. Um, and he just says all sorts of really <laughs> uncomplimentary, nasty things about them and about, you know, they're, uh, they're, 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 they're not as, as advanced or they're not as civilized, all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so again, you know, there are these, obviously these strands from their rut from earlier prior to, 1945 that are running straight through uh, into this early history with the Nigerian students. But um, most of them then, they originally start off studying um, language, uh, the, which, which most African students do. They originally, when they get to Germany or to East Germany, they are um, go into the Herder Institute. Uh, well, what becomes the Herder Institute, I guess. Um, and that starts in Leipzig where they get language training. And then um, from there, um, they um, move outwards into whatever program they're going into. And so that happened with the Nigerian students first. I mean, this wasn't the Herder Institute, but they were getting language training um, first in Leipzig at the university there. And then later, um, most of them in that group, they all actually all of them in that group either stayed in Leipzig or went to Dresden to study at the TEU. So, um, and I think as far as I know, in this first group, I think, all of them graduated, um, you know, and they, they tended to focus on science subjects. And that was, that's another sort of strand that goes through the book that uh, most of these African governments really are interested in uh, having people trained to help in development in different areas. So medicine is big, um, engineering, architecture, well, 
yeah, uh, veterinary medicine, all that kind of stuff. That's that's what they're really most interested in in terms of their um, what they want what they what they want the students to study. And in terms of this original group, um, there definitely are some doctors, engineers, and so forth. And again, including this first woman, uh, Yotunde uh, Bankole, who. Um, Agnes Bencole also, she's known also as that, who um, becomes an OBGYN. And well, that's, I, I talk about her a lot more later in the book and the chapter on gender. So, Yeah, thank you. Uh, what, what struck me in this chapter and also in subsequent chapters actually was kind of the pragmatic attitude the students had that it wasn't so much about going to the GDR. It wasn't really, it didn't matter that much, right? So um, I, th I think that might also come into uh, maybe how integration then worked or acculturation. Do you have a couple of thoughts about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, from my research, uh, there were some students who were very committed Marxist, but that was very, that was not a lot. <laughs> uh, most of them were in the GDR because that's where their government sent them. Um, this was maybe, you know, this didn't even really differ at the trade union college in Bernal because there are people who get sent to all sorts of, um, universities, colleges. There are people who go to the trade union college in Bernal to the Wilhelm Peak uh, FDJ school. Um, even those people who are, who work technically for like labor unions or for youth organizations, which are supposed to be socialist oriented, even a lot of them are not really don't aren't really interested in the you know in the Marxist ideology or anything. They just kind of just want to be able to get out and study um, in in another country and to you know to get out of their own country. Um, and um, I mean, again, some of them are, but the vast majority from again from one of the research that I'm, I've done do not seem to have much uh, interest in in Marxism or. Although that doesn't necessarily show. I mean, there there are these reports that are written. Um, by um, various, you know, the, their professors and administrators at the various universities they attend, which basically assess their level of commitment to Marxism. I mean, and a lot of times it's just sort of ambivalent, even though these reports are like, it's kind of ambivalent, you know, or they have a good attitude toward it, they have bad attitude towards it, or it's just like, you know. So, uh, but it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of real, um, it, at least not for the majority, a lot of real, you know, uh, committed Marxists. Um, in fact, even with that first Nigerian group, I did get to speak to, I mean, all of the uh, Nigerians unfortunately have passed away from that group, but um, I did get to speak with um, the daughter of one of the Nigerian students. Um, her name is Yvonne Kolagbode. Her dad was uh, Mayuru Kolagbode. And he was a very um, committed Marxist and he was a left-wing politician and he had a really hard time when he went back to Nigeria for this reason. And she told me that of that group, he was the only one who was a Marxist. She said the rest of them didn't show much interest. I don't know that there was one other student who became a professor later in Nigeria, I think at the University of Nsuka, who does, there are a couple of like articles or some things that he's written, which he does seem to be Marxist oriented, but it's, it's, that's less clear. Um, she, she was very, very clear that her father was the only one and that even of the students who followed him in the 1950s, um, at least they did, they were not, you know, in, they're not really interested in Marxism. And in fact, some of them, she said, were very, very capitalist in their orientation. So. Yeah. 
Okay, thank you. Uh, so in the second chapter, you talk about the long and arduous journey students took to get to East Germany, some of which lasted more than a year. So you also explore here African networks. Um, and I'm wondering whether you can tell us a little more about where the students were actually coming from, how they got to the GDR, what the travel hubs were, and how these networks developed. I know that's a lot, but it, that's kind of all coming coming together there. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. And I think that actually runs through that chapter and the one that follows as well, um, because in that chapter, I'm looking at students who were coming from either co countries that were not yet decolonized and not yet independent. And so they their um, travels to the GDR were being mediated either through trade unions or through uh, independence parties and independence movements. And obviously, The, the colonial governments had no interest in seeing students, you know, get to the GDR. And also in a lot of the countries I'm talking about in that chapter, and they're largely Southern African ones, um, or Central, South Central Africa, uh, like uh, Zambia, which is one of the focuses. There's a really, um, this was really very fortunate. Um, the Zambian, uh, the archives of the Zambian um uh, their party was called UNIP, um, United National Independence Party. Um, they were actually digitized and are available at um, at the British Library. So I went and spent um, a few weeks there reading through those papers. Um, and um, so, so th that gives you a really good idea of sort of what these papers really give you a good idea of what was happening, not just with the Zambians, but also with people who are coming up from further south. And at the time, and Zambia is decolonized in 1964, but sort of this is this chapter is really very much like late 50s, early 60s, and that's pretty much it. It's a very sort of short uh, time frame in that particular chapter. And, um, you know, at the time, you know, getting out of the country was difficult. Um, getting, you know, <laughs> getting to Dar es Salaam, which is where all the scholarships were tendered from is difficult. And it wasn't just for them, again, it's for students who are coming from further in the South. You see students coming from um, Namibia, you see students coming from South Africa, uh, some probably, I don't remember too many, but from Southern Rhodesia. Uh, you see students coming from Botswana, um, from all these, these um, now countries that were not yet decolonized at the time. Uh, and you see them sort of uh, moving moving through up through the continent and ultimately trying to reach Dar es Salaam. Um, and again, I have the greatest picture of that for Zambia, just because these files are really rich. Um, and so, but they were, so this network sort of came from the South and moved up to the East. And um, the students in this network, again, they, They had, and it was a very difficult time. You were mentioning these arduous journeys. There were students who talked about having walked long distances. Actually, those were students from Kenya who did not go through uh, Dar es Salaam, but they talked about that too, having walked, you know, for whatever, to get about thousands of miles to get to the GDR. Um, so, and there were people who took, you know, who went on trucks and, and they had to wait at borders for long periods, things of that sort. Uh, and then once they got to uh, Dar es Salaam, Uh, the next stop, next next stage was to finally get a flight to Cairo, um, and they were supposed to know where they were going when they left to go to they left for Cairo, but they didn't always. Sometimes they would end up going somewhere else. I mean, they would go to Cairo and then they would be dispersed elsewhere from there. Um, so it was it was it was very difficult, and and that was on this again southern side. Now, it, as time goes on, it becomes less difficult for certain certain people, right? I mean. Um, With Zambia, once it's decolonized in 64, it becomes another stop on the route rather than, um, you know, rather than a place that has to be escaped from, right? So, um, and 
you continue to see students from further south um, moving up. You also see certain students who then don't don't take that route at all. Like in Botswana, they stop that, and they don't. There are very. I, I didn't see any examples of Botswanan students actually in the GDR. Um, but I think they end up mostly going into the west. But so you don't see them anymore in that route. Um, on the other side, there. There, there are difficulties on the other side too, on the West West African side, which is where these, these other, I say, would say, roots converge. And by the way, in addition to my chapter, there's a lot of really good stuff on this. It's been written by um, a guy named Eric Burton, who also does a lot of work on African students. Um, so um, there's also this, this Western side and the students here who are having the most problems are mainly from Cameroon um, because Cameroon had a really horrible uh, decolonization process in which it was decolonized, but the French were still really very, very, I mean, that's true in other places too, but it's even more pronounced in Cameroon because um, essentially the French put the guy they want into power um, after, you know, in 1960. And the opposition party, which is the UPC, uh, the Union of the People, United, I can't remember what, anyway, but the UPC, um, they, um, the members of, of that group, um, basically are sort of, they become a really persecuted opposition and they have to sort of flee the country. So um, what ends up happening is they, the ones who can get out, um, will head for a sort of hubs of friendly countries, which were like Ghana, Guinea, and Mali in the late 50s and early 60s. Those are like the main countries that um, students from Cameroon uh, wanted to get to get to. So you, you, there are stories of them in Accra, and Conakry, in Bamako, um, and they transit through those cities. And if they're going, you know, they are going to get scholarships. Uh, that's how they get to uh, the GDR. And there are a few, quite a few number, quite a few uh, Cameroonian students in the late 50s and early 60s in the GDR. Um, for students from countries like Ghana, Guinea, and Mali, and that's what I write about in the chapter after the one, this one, um, it's a much easier process, at least for Ghana. I, I haven't really I wasn't able to look at files in, uh, relating to either Guinea or Mali, but um, for Ghana, it really was a question of negotiating the, their their government, their federal government, negotiating with different other different European countries and countries all over the world uh, to get a certain number of scholarships, and then students would apply for those scholarships, and then they would, you know, those who were selected would go. Um, they didn't. They tended though to apply sort of it's like a not for one particular country, but just sort of as a you know, to, to, for any scholarship that was being offered from a, a country abroad. Um, there were some people who did suggest or suggested that certain countries they wanted to go to. There was one guy I remember who said he knew some Germans, so he was happy to go to East or West Germany because that would be help, helpful for him. But it was a much easier process for them. So this is where, again, you get the African history sort of bisecting because um, the, the fates of the students really did often depend on the countries that they came from, right? Um, it wasn't... Uh, they, they, where they were going to study and what sort of opportunities they had really, again, just depended on that, very much on that, so. Yeah, that also uh, struck me when, when thinking about kind of the background or the education they had already received, and especially when thinking about Zambia, which you quote was one of uh, one of the most uneducated or most underprepared uh, colonies after the British uh, left versus Ghana, where there was pretty robust education, right? Yeah, that's a big that's a big factor as well. Yeah, I mean, in Zambia, there were no no Western universities or really no university presidents at all um, prior to decolonization. Uh, any Zambians who got, who were able to, uh, they, they most of them, they would get 
you know, education, uh, mostly in, in England, right? Uh, and that's true in a lot of places. A lot of uh, people, a lot of the, um, a lot of Africans who went as students um, to Europe before the Cold War either went to England or to France, depending on which, you know, whether they were Anglophone or, or loose or rather Francophone. Um, I don't think there were any, or any, did anybody go from the former Portuguese colonies to Portugal? I don't know. Anyway, and not in the pre wartime period. Um, anyway, Portugal is a very different example. But And there's somebody named Marcia Schenk who writes a lot about that, Lucifer. Yeah, so Zambia didn't have uh, any universities. Um, and that also affected um, the kinds of students who ended up going to the GDR. And this was a big issue uh, for the GDR. And I imagine it was probably an issue at a lot of other countries too, that there were students who would arrive. And again, if they start in 1951, and then they just keep coming right until the end of, you know, the end of the, the GDR. Um, there are students who get sent um, from countries like Zambia, actually also countries like Tanzania, countries all over actually, who have very little education. And by that, I don't just mean they they all just finished high school. I mean, there are students who come with seventh grade education, eighth grade education, and that's because they didn't have that opportunity, right? There weren't any any schools they could go to beyond that level. And But this makes it really difficult when they get there. They have to not only learn a new language, they also have to sort of get caught up to speed to be able to enter a university or even uh, I don't talk about this as much but it's this is largely it's it's students but it's also trainees right who are coming um there are uh, Africans who are being sent to do uh to work in sort of vocate to get vocational educations as well um but even in those cases I think there is a bit of um there's a lot of of unhappiness of that not the fact that a lot of these students don't have sort of the requisite education level already to be able to then go to the university or even to go into some of these vocational programs either. So um, they just don't have that because, again, they weren't allowed um, that kind of education. So, yeah. And then Ghana, well, yeah, Ghana has a really strong educational tradition. Um, in fact, they become uh, <laughs> a place that other African students want to go to. So you see this too um, with uh, the Zambians that uh, there are some Zambians who end up getting sent to Ghana. So uh, that, and, and also I should say with Ghana is that from what I saw is they preferred to keep the best students for themselves and to send students who they didn't see as being as good to other countries. So that was, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so in the first three chapters, you also talk about how um, the African students often gained this freedom of movement once they had actually left their countries and then they could travel to the West and things that the East Germans really couldn't. Um, at another part of this freedom that East Germans might not have enjoyed um, is really the protest, the political action that the African students take while in the GDR. And this is what your chapter four is about. And uh, you have some examples of national groups taking up protests because of events that happen in their home countries. You talk about Guinea, Nigeria, Kenya, and Mali. Can you describe one of these for us? Okay, yeah. I mean, there <laughs> there are yeah several of these that I go over in the book. I'm trying to think of which one is. Um, well, so... Um, I guess Nigeria is the one that stands out the most to me. Um, so what happens is if from the very beginning when Nigerian students are coming, and I mean way back in, you know, when they're first being recruited in 49 and then coming in 51, most of the students who are coming are Igbo in terms of ethnicity. And um, Nigeria is as, as a very uh, complicated sort of and diverse sort of um, group of ethnicities, not there's a it's, there are complicated relationships between them amongst them I should say um, 
And so uh, most of the ones who were coming, and this continued to be the case, it's not everybody, but most of them, I would say, um, through the 1960s um, are Igbo. And there are, from time to time, there are tensions between those students who are Igbo and students from other parts of Nigeria who are uh, Yoruba or Hausa or whatever. They don't often identify exactly where they're from, but from other places uh, or different, different ethnicities. Um, and this, so there are points where the, the organization kind of breaks apart along those lines. And then this becomes extremely, extremely obvious um, in 1967 uh, when you get the Biafran crisis, um, which essentially is when um, the uh, Biafra, which is the which was where the, most of the Igbo people were from, um, when they decide to break away from the rest of Nigeria and form their own state. And then when the federal government of Nigeria basically uh, cuts off and chokes off their supplies so that ultimately they have to, they have to give in because they don't, the people are starving, they don't have the supplies and so forth. Um, so um, you might think that the GDR would be on the side of the Biafrans, but they weren't. Um, everybody in, in the Eastern Bloc, they were all behind the Soviets and they were on the side of the federal government. Um, Nigeria, it's, it's interesting because it comes up so much, but Nigeria is never a socialist country. In fact, and they're not even really, I would say, not aligned. Uh, they're really more, for the whole time, for the whole, most of their history after independence in 1960, uh, they really are very firmly aligned with the United States and with the capitalist bloc. Uh, nonetheless, again, you have all these students who are going at least um, through you know, the 1960s. Um, and again, they're originally being sent through trade unions uh, or opposition movements, not, um, not through the federal government. But in any case, um, the Soviets and the GDR nonetheless wanted to support the federal government. Um, I think they I think they hoped that in that way they might be able to, it's complicated, but they supported the federal government. Okay. And so um, the Nigerian student organization uh, was split between uh, people who were Uibos and people who were not. And the, the government and the universities were very strongly lined up behind uh, those organizations that the organ, the student organization that was, um, <laughs> that was, not Igbo. Uh, so in 1967, though, you get these instances where there are um, arguments, not not really, it, it, nothing, nothing violent happens, but there's the idea that this one man brings a knife to a meeting and that the Igbo students interrupt the meeting of the um, of the non-Ebo students. Um, and so they are they essentially the students who are Ebo are protesting the GDR's policy, uh, both the GDR's policy of um, of being on the side of the federal government, but even more so, they're they're, they're protesting the actions of their own federal government against uh, Biafra. So that's that's one example. I mean, the other ones they're all, I think, somewhat. Uh, they're not all similar exactly, but um, yeah. Anyway. <laughs> Yeah, what seems similar too is that the GDR would mostly support the states that were sending oh, yeah, the students rather than the students. Right? Always, yeah. I just think because in in Guinea that was the case as well, and in Guinea there was more of this connection because Sekou Toure was at the beginning of his he was um, he claimed to be non-aligned, but he was also a pretty brutal dictator, um, pretty much from the get-go. So um, what happened in that case is in the early 1960s. Um, there were was a, a there was an attempted teacher strike in Guinea that was very brutally suppressed, and basically the only place there could be protest really, or at least protests that came out into the open, was overseas. And so the Guinean students in the GDR um, sort of hook up with uh, 
with Guinean students all over Europe, including in France, which I think is the center of the movement, um, to discuss uh, what, it, what had happened and to lodge protests against uh, Sekutori and against their government. And they're also very concerned because what happens is that um, Torre decides to recall these Guinean students from the GDR and elsewhere uh, to go back to Guinea and essentially for re-education, which means being sent to a concentration camp. Um, and the Guineans were obviously were, were very, and the GDR was very much, okay, we'll send them back. And the Guineans were like, no, we are not going back. So it's this whole uh, sort of standoff that that develops and in, in that case. So. Yeah. So in chapter five, uh, you discuss the intersections of race and gender, and you open the chapter with a request from Zambia that asked the GDR to prevent marriages between Zambians and East Germans. And there, they did not uh, um, actually support the government, but rather they declined. However, the internal situation looked a lot more complicated. So can you tell us a little bit more about the sexualized stereotypes, the relationships, and the GDR's approach to, to relationships? Okay, so as I mentioned before, when I was talking about the Nigerian students, um, relationships between African students and East German women uh, were very, very common. I, I would say that, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I say, I would say at least 90% of the African men, if you look through their files, there will at some point come up mention of one or more East German women who they're having relationships with. So it's very common. Um, and... Um, there are also marriages, uh, people who are who leave, then leave the country, they get married, they leave the country. Um, but um, so, sorry, I have to pull back for a second. Uh, the GDR position is, it, it, it kind of goes back and forth and wavers a little depending on what country, partially on what country someone comes from. So they're willing to accept, accept marriages from countries like with students from countries like Mali because they are they are socialist aligned in theory at least but they reject marriage requests from students in countries like Togo which are very firmly on the capitalist side um, so their policy I'd say or their I mean, policy I don't know if they is, is really ambivalent I mean, on on the surface they're saying yes you know we, we are we're anti-imperialist we're anti-racist um, we're going to encourage uh, the, these relationships, we're going to encourage, you know, we're not going to block these students from getting married or anything like that. But uh, again, behind the scenes, it's it's a me it's a messier sort of proposition. Uh, I mentioned that again, they didn't want like necessarily uh, East German women marrying men from um, non-socialist aligned states. Um, further than that, there was this fear um, on the part uh, fear amongst East German officials of um, African that East German women were only marrying African men to leave the country, um, and so that they could get out and go to these various African countries. So, uh, and for that reason, I think there was also um, a lot of hesitation to let these relationships, or at least the ones that were going to be whether they were going to get married and so forth. Um, there was a lot of hesitation because it was. I think the assumption was that these weren't love matches, which is not true at all. You can't. There's no evidence that they weren't, right? <laughs> but um, I think the the assumption is basically that you know these these women are marrying these men to get out of the country, um, and you know on the other side there's this one very weird case that I think I mentioned in the chapter where um, there's a Malian man who's who's who is married to an East German woman, 
and um, or and, and they they are trying to get an apartment, which of course was difficult anyway, uh, getting it, you know, getting housing together and all of that. And then there's a suggestion that that he is just going to be going off and cheating on her and running around that all Africans are going out and like, you know, having sex with as many people as possible. <laughs> this whole, but that is part of the stereotype, right? That they Africans are supposed to be incredibly lascivious. Uh, they're supposed to be, you know, just basically constantly, you know, trying to like, you know, get together with with. East German woman. Uh, and on the other side, of course, there's a stereotype <clears throat> that surrounds the East German woman as well that you see actually in the both prior to the Cold War and then even and into the Cold War era in the GDR, um, that the East German women who sleep with these men or who have relationships with these men have to be loose, right? Or they have to be, you know, slutty, right? To, in order to do this. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a, tr that's a thing that goes way back. I mean, there was a around the turn of the 20th century, uh, there's a very famous story about a man named Toro Bakari, who was actually a language teacher in Berlin and then in Hamburg. He was from he was Swahili. He was from East Africa and from Tanzania. And uh, he marries this woman who's named Berta Hilska. And Berta Hilska is a, um, she's a lower class um, and they fall in love, they get married. And the idea is that she is basically like, she has like, stunned him or like you know i don't know hypnotized him into like this relationship she and her mother in order to get his money and it's not he doesn't have money so it's not really clear but it's this whole but there's this whole again this idea surrounding um not only that african men are especially lascivious but that east german women who would go and be with the african men are themselves um somewhat debauched so and, and that also then intersects with this idea that the africans are supposed to be in east germany only to study. They're not supposed to be getting into these relationships. And these Eastern women are just, you know, interrupting all that. They're disrupting um, the, the, the march of these, you know, noble men to, to you know, to um, actually, you know, achieve their degrees and then go back and build, you know, build state socialism. So, you know. Yeah, it's interesting how the racist stereotypes intersect there with classist stereotypes, misogyny, all of it. It's, you get it all. <laughs> yeah, basically, it is all there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so women, uh, African women, accounted mm -hmm. for just 10 to 12 percent of all African students. Can mm -hmm. you and you discuss several reasons for this. Can you briefly uh, tell us a couple of those? Well, there are a couple of the reasons that come both from um, the GDR as well as from the African states. Right. Um, on the African side, um, they only get a certain number of scholarships to send students abroad. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention before is that um, the, the, when the GDR is offering scholarship to a country like Ghana, say, um, they they specify the number of, of scholarships they can have, and they have contracts. They have contracts and agreements, right, with these with these different states about how many students can come. Um, and in some cases, there are women who apply or women who are available to go, you know, um, go study uh, in the GDR elsewhere, and. What happens though is that the the side of that's picking the governmental side, uh, education department, whatever, in these various African countries, always tend to favor men over women, and this is not surprising um, in general. Even in um, you know missionary education and you know high school education, and then further on into university education, um, there's a bias in a lot of places um, towards the male student, right, or towards the male in the family, um, to send the men, the boys abroad, or to send the boys to school, whereas if they have only enough money to send, you know, 
one kid to school, it's always going to be the boy, right? That kind of thing. Um, so this basically replicates itself. Um, there's one case I mentioned where, and I think a student was actually, um, the female student was picked to go to Yugoslavia and in Ghana, and, and, and they're like, no, we can't do that because, you know, we don't, we, it, it would not look good for us to have one of our first students going to Yugoslavia be a woman, right? Um, so that's one aspect of it. And, and also, again, if, if there are a lot of men who don't have very much education or don't have really enough education to be going to university who are being sent anyway to the GDR, that's even more so the case for women. There aren't enough women who are qualified uh, because, again, they've been, give, they've been denied access uh, to educational opportunities. And, and again, not just from their families, but also I would say from uh, the, the colonial states that they lived under as well. Um, mm-hmm. um, on the GDR side, uh, there is there's the idea that they don't want families coming to be in the GDR, that they're okay with having sort of a, a single <laughs> single man, whether then they get married, whatever, or when they have children, whatever, or perhaps single woman, but they are really concerned with the idea that the women are going to come, especially the women, are going to come with their families and they can't support those families. They don't have the room for them. They don't have the housing space for them. And so what ends up happening is those women students who are able to come, and it's not a lot, um, they have to have their, if they have children, the children can't be with them. They have to be elsewhere. Like there's a story of one woman or two a couple of women whose kids end up having to live in London because with their with relatives because they can't be um, in the GDR while she's studying. There's no room for them in the GDR. Um, there are also cases where African men will ask to have their wives come and also study, and they're like, no, we just don't have room for families. We just don't have we just don't have space for them. So on both sides, on the side of African sending governments and on the side of the GDR. Um, it's very difficult for women uh, to be able to break through. And when they do, and this is a case I don't discuss in the book because it's af- out of the time frame. but in the early 80s, there's a woman uh, from Namibia who, who got pregnant and there's this whole, all this stuff like, well, we have to send her back. We can't have that happening here. So, mm-hmm. you know, so even going on further, you get this, uh, this idea of women, again, women can become pregnant, women can have families and, you know, there's not as much fear of that with men. Um, even though they're, of course, having families as well and having kids as well, uh, they don't see it in the same way. Right. Yeah. All right. So in your conclusion, you talk about the end of this first era of student exchanges in the 1970s. What made this period come to a close? Well, there are a couple different things. Um, well, on the east, on the German side, there's the, the, the uh, end of the Hallstein Doctrine, the doing away with the Hallstein Doctrine. And so... Um, there's a lot more, you know, there's the more rapprochement between East and West Germany. Um, on the African side, there's a lot of changes going on in the various different governments at this time. So um, later decolonizations are starting to occur. So in the 1970s, mid-70s, um, you get um, the fall of the fascist government in Portugal, and that opens up students from to have students from countries like Mozambique and Angola for them to actually start uh, to go abroad for education. And those states both become very firmly socialist aligned. So they begin to send students and then later guest workers. That's the whole story in the 80s, right? Uh, they begin to send students and then guest workers from those countries. And so those populations start to rise. Um, the other thing is that um, in the mid 70s, um, there's a, a, a begins, a, the, so Ethiopia becomes very important for 
for East Germany. Um, and this is because um, uh, Haile Selassie is overthrown and the Marxist dirt takes over um, and they begin to they create this very uh, strong relationship to the GDR and um, they end up studying, in fact, Ethiopia becomes, I think, the, the most, most the, like, the largest sender of students to the GDR uh, from the 70s and into the 1980s, sort of towards the end, to the end of the end of that era. So I see this as there's a couple of different breaks, uh, historical breaks going on with these later decolonizations, um, with some of this rapprochement between the East and the West. Uh, so I think that's that, that for me was a good sort of breaking point because things do begin to change then. Uh, another thing, I guess, and this is, is that um, prior to like, I would see even the 1980s, maybe like the late 70s, um, almost all the students were paid for the the scholarships of the students were almost always paid for by the GDR. They didn't accept private students. Now, they said that there are some cases I found where they did. Um, usually, though, there, there are people who are just randomly their letters. I'll find people saying, "I really wanted to come study in East Germany. How can I do that?" And they get letters back and say, "Well, we have you, you can't do it unless um, you go through the government and you know uh, your own government. And your government either does or doesn't have an agreement with us. So you have to talk to the people in your own government." Um, but again, there are some people like, I don't know, it's not often, but, you know, where they have family connections and then they're allowed to go anyway, or they have a lot of money and then they're allowed to pay to go. But that's pretty rare. Um, once you get to the later 70s and 80s, um, the GDR needs that money more <laughs> and the universities. <laughs> and so they start to accept a lot more students who are paying. And that is another big shift, I think, that takes place um, in terms of you know, who's coming. And, and there are more women, I think, who also start to come at that point as well, though it's never as many as men. All right. Thank you. So we've awesome. taken up a lot of your time. Oh, Our no, traditional okay. final question is about your current projects. What are you working on right now? So I'm very excited about my next project, which I'm calling uh, German Colonial Afterlives. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at how the memory of German colonialism and the shared history, I guess, of colonialism between Germany and its former colonies uh, impacts uh, relationships between both Germanys and those African states um, in um, the Cold War, as well as sort of what traces of um, the German colonial past can be found in different locations. Um, so to give an example of what that would be like, uh, in the 1970s, um, the Bundesarchiv sent an archivist out to Togo and Cameroon. I, I think they also sent one to Tanzania um, to look for archival um, you know, documents that were kind of scattered throughout these former colonies. And they also began a program to try to train uh, local Africans to become archivists to do this work alongside the German archivist. So this is, I think, really fascinating, right? I mean, this is like, you know, the construction of a, a colonial archive, right? Or the archive of history of German colonialism. Um, so that would be one aspect. Um, another thing would be looking at sort of the, um, you know, the, the relationships that sort of existed across boundaries. Like there's the development of a, there is an Afro, Afro uh, a Togolese German uh, community in Togo, even, you know, after, Uh, the end of um, the Cold War. I mean, even well, even after after the end of colonization, actually, also after the end of the Cold War. But that wasn't what I was getting at. Just in the Cold War, there is this. There continues to be this community. Um, also, there's a really interesting um, <laughs> development of relationship between Togo and West Germany, where 
the West Germans are really convinced that the Togolese really, really, really like them. And that even around decolonization, they're like, well, you know, they might prefer to even have us be coming back to them to be decolonized. Of course, that's not true. But they do develop this very strong relationship. And the Togolese government does, or the Togolese, they do, they do kind of have developing in this very friendly relationship, I suppose, where there are, there's a program in the 70s and 80s to make German um, the primary second language um, in uh, Togolese schools. And they have some success with that, it seems. Um, there's also in um, 84, 85, uh, the West German government decides to have an exhibit um, marking the um, you know 100 years since the Berlin conference. And they ask all their former um, colonies if they would want to participate or if they'd want to have their own um, exhibits. And for the most part, they say no. But the Togolese are really excited and enthusiastic about doing this. So uh, the question is, why? Why were they specifically excited about this? So it's, it's, a, it's, it's interesting. And there's some of this, though not as much by any means, in Cameroon. Um, a lot of it, especially around the, not in the 80s, but especially right, right after uh, decolonization, I attribute to the fact that people in Togo, and at this point even more so in Cameroon, really despise the French. And so they don't have a lot of memories of the German colonial period. And therefore, they are just comparing what they know and what has been really bad for them recently with something that they don't really remember. And they are then calling on the Germans to uh, to come help them against the French. So That sounds fascinating. I hope we can talk more about it once it is finished. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show today. I enjoyed it. Take care. Tschüss and goodbye. Tschüss. Thank you.